Turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. A little over a month ago, leadership of Messiah's Reform Fellowship had our annual strategy meeting. We did a SWAT test, strength, weakness, opportunities, threats. We review what we've done in the year gone by, try to make course corrections um, for the year to come and plan, and uh, noted that there were a number of areas in which we were weak. There are a number of areas in which we're strong, a number of areas in which we're weak, and we we numbered five areas. And my rotation this time around has been to address those five areas of weakness, um, believing that God works through the preaching of his word uh, to instruct, encourage, and exhort um, his dearly loved people. That's, that's you. And we began with corporate prayer. And I would continue to encourage you to uh, attend prayer meeting. We moved the time to 8 o'clock on Tuesday night to make it more convenient for those of you to get home later and uh, have time to eat. Uh, Any other suggestions about corporate prayer, please bring them. We're open to them, welcome to them. Uh, You are free, of course, to pray in groups uh, other than on Tuesday night. Um, And we're hoping to have an entire day of prayer planned uh, shortly where for 24 hours we're having members of the congregation uh, pray together. So we actually have a 24-hour day of prayer. So corporate prayer is one. Um, Every member ministry, uh, that it's my job, Pastor Dan's job, to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And I would simply ask you once again, what is your ministry at Messiah's Reform Fellowship? Uh, What is that? If you don't know, if you don't know how to find out, Uh, please come and talk to one of the leaders, uh, elders, deacons, pastors, uh, that we can help you find uh, how you can be a blessing to this congregation beyond just sitting in worship on Sunday. Then we uh, turn to why do we have two services, and we noted that uh, Sunday is a set-apart day. It's a distinct day. It's a day that God blessed and set apart uh, for himself and his people um, as the husband of his bride, the church, and uh, that in worship we meet with God And Jesus Christ actually speaks to us, that the preached word of God is the word of God, as the second Helvetic Confession says. And I would just remind you, what better thing do you have to do than to hear Jesus speak to you? Um, So, uh, as a means of grace. And then last week, we looked at evangelism. And uh, we looked particularly at the personification of evangelism in the Gospel according to John, which was Andrew. And Andrew is constantly bringing people to Jesus and bringing Jesus to people. And we said evangelism is that simple. It, it's bringing, bringing uh, them to him and bringing him to them. And we looked at a number of things today. I want to look at a particularly weak area, according to our deacons, and that is tithing. And I want to preface uh, my comments this morning by saying I'm addressing members of Messiah's Reform Fellowship here and fellow Christians. So if you're visiting with us and you're not a Christian, I I realize that churches all over the metropolitan area are are always hawking about money. Um, That's why I, in 20 years of ministry here, have preached on money three times in 20 years, and they were three consecutive sermons a number of years ago. Um, We, as a matter of fact, probably for... 11 or 12 years of our existence, we didn't even take an offering because we realized that most churches in New York were always asking people for money, and we did not want to be one of those churches. So uh, I want to reiterate that message this morning. If you're visiting with us, 
you're not a Christian, uh, you're not a member of Messiah's, keep, keep your wallet in your pocket. We already had a collection, I should have told you before. But uh, please, this is not about getting your money, all right? Um, this is addressed particularly to uh, members of Messiah's Reform Fellowship and uh, fellow uh, Christians, all right? Um, as one of the weaknesses of our church, at least according to our, our deacons, all right? So at, at their information, I am uh, addressing you in this area. So read with me, having under, uh, said all of that, Second Corinthians chapter 8. We'll just read the first nine verses. We'll be making reference to other things, so keep your Bibles open. Hear what follows for what it is, the Word of God. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It was J.C. Ryle who said, a giving Savior should have giving disciples. A giving Savior should have giving disciples. Three points this morning. A review of what the Scripture teaches. I'm going to try to be succinct about this. I realize many of us may not know uh, this concept, uh, biblical concept of tithing. But uh, secondly, the reasons why uh, we are to tithe. And then thirdly, what your response uh, should be. So a review of what Scripture uh, teaches first and foremost. Uh, we see tithing begun in the book of Genesis. Uh, first of all, uh, in Genesis chapter 14, prior to the Mosaic law, all right, uh, Melchizedek, uh, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, of course, is a type of Christ, and Abraham is an example of tithing to Christ, of whom Melchizedek is an example. A tithe simply is 10%, all right, 10%. Um, and ordinarily, for most of us that get a paycheck, don't own businesses, it would be 10% or a tithe of your increase, all right, uh, for those of us who own businesses, uh, there are other things to be taken into consideration, and if you have difficulty uh, uh, evaluating that, you can talk to me, and we could talk more about that, all right? But basically, tithe is very simple. Tithe means 10%, all right? Um, and uh, we're to tithe on, on our increase. Uh, we see uh, tithing again. Jacob tithes in Genesis 28, verse 22. Uh, we see tithing in Leviticus 27, uh, verse uh, 30. Uh, and there specifically, without turning to all these verses, the tithe, God says the tithe belongs to him, all right? So uh, please, you're not giving your money to uh, Pastor Dan or Pastor Murphy. You're not giving your money to Messiahs. This belongs to God. You're giving your money to God, all right? So um, it's holy, all right? It's very interesting that in time, times of apostasy, the giving goes down. Uh, in times of revival, giving goes up. And hence, tithing is actually a barometer of one's spiritual life, all right? 
It's one way uh, where you can test uh, your spirituality, your commitment, devotion uh, to the Lord is, do you tithe? All right? Um, unless anybody say, as is common, well, we're a New Testament church, we're New Testament Christians, that's all Old Testament, that was for Israel, doesn't apply today. Well, I will have you look at one passage, Matthew chapter 23. Uh, from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, we see uh, the tithe. Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus is reproving the religious leaders of his day um, for their outward uh, devotion and he's pronouncing covenant curses on them. You should know that woe in the Bible is not like woe is me, right? You know, it's not mourning or, or grieving. When Jesus pronounces woes, they're curses, uh, the curses of the covenant. So Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Now, we don't live in an agricultural economy, uh, but you should know that uh, mint, dill, and cumin were the smallest items of agricultural produce that you could tithe on. In an agricultural economy, you would tithe on your increase. Your increase was the harvest. The harvest here had to do with crops. The smallest things you could tithe on were mint, dill, and cumin. Notice that Jesus doesn't condemn them for tithing on the smallest things they could tithe on, mint, dill, and cumin. What he does condemn them for is in the next uh, statement. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, that's where most Christians stop. And what they do is they misinterpret this passage. They say, well, you know, tithe, that was Old Testament. New Testament, we don't have to tithe, right? You know, the Lord loves a cheerful giver after all. You know, God doesn't, you know, let me just tell you, God doesn't want a tip. He wants a tithe, all right? <clears throat> okay. So, but when people misinterpret, right, and they make it favorable to themselves, and they say, oh, tithe, Old Testament, New Testament, we don't have to do that. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, ah, the way to your matters of the law, what's important, right? Uh, law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. But please, look at the text. That's not where Jesus stops. Look at what he says. These you ought to have done, justice, mercy, faithfulness, without neglecting the others, tithing on mint, dill, and cumin. So here we have an explicit verbal affirmation of tithing from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, even on the smallest increase in one's economic package. Very interesting. All right. Now, of course, you come to... Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, for example, the Lord loves a, a cheerful giver. It talks about setting aside a storehouse. Uh, the prosper, as the, it says, as the Lord prospers you, that phrase is a definite portion of income because the only proportion God specified in his word is the tithe. He hasn't said anything else. So although it's not explicit, it's implicit in what's said there because that's the only thing that God has prescribed, Right? And uh, people who set the New Testament against the Old Testament say, well, we're not under law, we're under grace, right? Can I just tell you if that's the way you think? You're wrong, all right? You're wrong. Grace does not equal lawlessness, all right? The opposite of grace is not law, right? The opposite of law is chaos, not grace. So grace, being under grace, doesn't mean you're lawless. Remember what John says about lawlessness in his epistle? Sin is lawlessness. Well, God's not promoting sin in the New Testament. 
all right? Grace doesn't lower God's standard. If anything, it raises it, right? Tithing is not the finish line, it's the starting block. It's not the ceiling, it's the floor, all right? All right, I don't want to, I've been consistent, I think, tried very hard in these messages, previous four messages, not promoting any guilt, and I don't want to promote false guilt, all right? So let's just get on to the reasons why you should tithe, all right? Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, all right? Tithing illustrates God's salvation. Okay? It's an illustration of God's gracious salvation. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. God is love, and love gives, so in giving you draw a small-scale picture of the gospel. All right? What Paul is simply saying here in in these verses, all right, is a reference to Jesus Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection, all right? God, he who was completely equal with God in power, substance, and glory, the second person of the triune God, right, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, Paul says in the book of Philippians. But he humbled himself, taking on the form of human flesh, that of a servant, and became obedient, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And Paul is putting that in a little bit different words, a little bit different language here. He's saying he was rich. He was rich in glory. He was equal with God. He didn't have to come, but he humbled himself and he became poor for your sake. He went to the cross and died to take on your sins. That's what he took. And he gave you his righteousness, that double imputation, that double transaction, right? He saved you. He's taken your sins upon himself and he's given you his righteousness so that you might be rich. So right at the outset here, I want you to see this is gospel-motivated, not guilt-motivated. Please, we don't want people coming to Tuesday night prayer meeting or gathering in corporate prayer out of guilt, right? We don't want people engaging in ministry and the work of this church out of guilt. We don't want people coming to 10.30 and 11.30 service out of guilt. We don't want people going about doing evangelism out of guilt. At every sermon, I've tried to lead with grace, Grace, grace. It's God's love. It's God's grace to you in Jesus Christ that needs to be that which moves you, motivates you, and leads you to live in faithful love to him. We don't give an order to get right with God, but because we've been made right with God by grace for no other reason than his good pleasure and his love. Secondly, Second reason why you should tithe is it promotes sanctification. It promotes your growth in grace, all right? <clears throat> that is God's work in you. Why? Well, sanctification requires self-denial. It's the prerequisite of Christian discipleship, isn't it? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And, and tithing, right, giving to the Lord requires self-denial. It requires self-sacrifice. Listen, just personal testimony, and again, no guilt here, all right, just an illustration, an example, all right. 
There are many times where, you know, I got bills. I have bills I have to pay. I got bills in front of me when it's time to get out the checkbook or whatever it is, right? And it's like, you know, God first. God first. If I get to the end of my bank account and I don't have money to pay Con Ed or somebody, they can wait. God first. Self-sacrifice. If I have to go without pizza on Saturday night, if I, don't, if I can't go out to dinner this week, God first. Sacrifice. You see, in giving, God is at work to make you more like him. To make you more like Christ. Thirdly, throughout this text, very important, this is a work of grace, not law. For those of you who want to pit law against grace, all right? Look with me, if you will, all right? Verse 1, we want you to know about the grace of God. Now, the whole two chapters here, chapter 8, chapter 9, is talking about giving, right? But what does he say first? We want you to know about the grace of God. Look at verse 6. So we should complete among you this act of grace. Verse 7. See that you excel in this act of grace. Look at verse 19. We didn't read down to there, but and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. What are they doing? They're going around collecting money. They're not guilting people into that. They're not beating them over the head and manipulating them. He says this is an act of grace. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then verse 14, same thing. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The obligations in the New Testament under grace, yes, we're under grace, we're not on the law, but we don't do away with the law. This is a mistaken understanding of the Bible. Everything in the old continues into the new unless God says it hasn't. And God has not said, done away with the tithe. I told you from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. And that's what Paul's talking about here, all right? In the New Testament, it's greater the obligation to the Lord, not lesser. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, not just foreshadowed in the sacrifices, the types, and uh, whatever, all right, the prophecies. He's come in the flesh. We don't, have, we, only have, we don't only have a promise of Jesus Christ coming to save us from our sins. He's actually demonstrated. He's come in history. He lived a perfectly obedient life that you might have his perfect righteousness. And he died a substitutionary death. In your place, condemned he stood, sealed your pardon with his blood. A fact in history, Jesus Christ died. Demonstrated for all to see. Not just types and shadows and prophecies. It's a greater obligation, not a lesser. Fourth, this giving is an act of love, not legalism. Look at verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Verse 8. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Love. Not legalism. Look at verse 7 in chapter 9. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God lives a cheerful giver. 
Not guilt. Love. The standard of giving, you see, is the depth of your love for God. It's an actual spiritual barometer. Whitney, Donald Whitney in his, his book says this interesting illustration, I think, makes the point. God doesn't want you to give with a grudge. That is, you, you give, but you'd rather not. He takes no pleasure in gifts presented resentfully, regardless of the amount involved. God is not a celestial landlord tapping a greedy, uh, outstretched palm, demanding his due, having no concern for how you feel about it. God doesn't want you to give to him out of a reluctant acquiescence to the reality that he owns it all anyway. He wants you to give because you want to. One man said, there are three kinds of giving, grudge giving, duty giving, and thanksgiving. Grudge giving says, I have to. Duty giving says, I ought to. Thanksgiving says, I want to. He goes on. Some people give to God like they fork over to the IRS after an audit. Others give to God like they pay their electric bill. And mine's been pretty high lately. But a few people give to God like they give an engagement ring to their fiancé or like they give wrapped surprises to their ecstatic four-year-old on Christmas morning. Some give because they know they can't keep it. Others give because they believe they owe it. And a happy few give because they say they can't help it. Thank God for such people. Fifthly, giving, tithing, specific, is an act of worship. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Turn over a couple Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. And verse 18, Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's one of the reasons why we take an offering in corporate worship, because it's an act of worship. Even when we didn't take an offering, we had a box in the back and we had a a line, very, very minuscule print at the bottom. There's a box in the back if you want to place your offering. The offering box was in the temple when you went to worship. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, or you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it for you. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. God speaking to Israel. Uh, here, Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, uh, feast of weeks and the, at the Feast of Booth. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. All males were required to go to uh, Jerusalem and, and to the temple three times a year for worship. Women could go, but realized that the burdens of domesticity and family and child-rearing, one thing could be a burden. All the males were required. Females could go, right? Children too, but they, didn't, they weren't required to. But when you go, God says, don't come empty-handed. You're going to worship. Bring your offering. Sixthly, it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. This is very important. All right? Look at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. 
or just listen as I read it for you, all right? Mark 12, verse 41 and following. And he sat down opposite the treasury. This is Jesus. This is the temple. There was a, a money box, right? A pushka. Yeah, opposite the treasury. Watch the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For all, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now you say, now you've got to understand the widow in Bible times, right, didn't get a social security check, right? She didn't have an insurance policy on her husband's death, right? A widow was destitute. And here she comes to the temple, and she put in, all she had. Now just ask yourself the question. What's this destitute woman going to live on? You see, tithing requires faith. It requires that you believe God is the one who gives you your increase. You may have that check deposited, all right, uh, what is it, auto-deposit in your account, but behind your employer, behind that automatic deposit, right, is your employer. Behind the employer is you working, and behind you is, is God. God. God gave you that money. It's instructive for our children, isn't it? We used to do this, right? You know, I grew up in the Bronx. Where does milk come from? It comes from a container. You put a quarter in a machine, you get out a container of milk, right? No, no milk comes from God. God took a cow, put him in the field, chew it, chewed the cud, whatever happened, the rest of the biology is, right? I don't know, right? Grew up in the Bronx, why do I know, right? So, and, 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 and out of squeezing the teeth comes milk. God did that. God put that on the table. It takes faith to tithe. Faith that God is the one who provides you with income. God is the one who put food on your table. God is the one who said, I've never seen the righteous go hungry. You believe that? Do you believe that enough to tithe? Right? It's an act of faith. Lord, I don't know. Okay, but I do. You be faithful. And let the chips fall where they may. Seven. Tithing delights God. I don't know about you, but I want to see the smile of God's countenance upon me. Isn't that the ironic benediction? May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you, give you peace. It's the, I hope it's the desire of every Christian. I want God to smile on me. I want God to delight in me. I want to delight myself in the Lord. Isn't that what the psalmist says? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Tithing delights God. Look at our text, 9-7. Chapter 9, verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, see, <laughs> in our day, to get around this, this, this tithing, right, we say, oh, cheerful giver. Uh, but 
If I give God a tip, <laughs> I'm cheerful. If I give God a tithe, it's like, no, no, no. The emphasis, God loves. God loves. God delights when you tithe. Look at chapter 8, the first five verses. It's all about that, right? I'm not going to read them for time's sake. Happy giving leads to a happy God. Expresses eighthly, it expresses obedience. Matthew 23, right? These you ought to have done without neglecting the former. It's a powerful testimony to God's lordship. Remember what Jesus said? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? most fundamental confession of a Christian is Jesus is Lord. Nobody can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. Do you say that Jesus is Lord? Do you do what he says? It's a powerful testimony of God's lordship. God owns all the money. Psalmist says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You know what? He owns the cattle on a hill thousand and one too. He owns it all. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. It's all his. We're but stewards of it all. Tithing advances God's church and God's kingdom in the world. That's why you should tithe, right, only to legitimate Christian causes, right? Don't be tithing to, you know, uh, what is it, uh, United Way, right? It's not a Christian cause. It's not advancing God's glory and God's purposes, right? Don't, don't be tithing to the Red Cross. Give to the Red Cross, please. I mean, you know, emergency relief, that's all right, right? But don't do that with your tithe. Right? Your tithe belongs to God. It's to be used for God's church. And of course, you should tithe primarily where you're fed. And for Messiah's Reformed Fellowship members, you're fed here. Right? You're, you're, you're encouraged, you're exhorted, you're edified here. It supports Pastor Dan. It supports me. It supports the work of this ministry. It supports the work of this ministry in the metropolitan area. Or you can give to any legitimate Christian cause. You know, maybe the deacons are wrong. Maybe the deacons are saying we don't really, we're really weak in tithing. Maybe it's because everybody's tithing everywhere else. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't asked. But you should be tithing where you're being fed. And your primary responsibility is to your local church. Because they're the ones that take the time and effort and energy to care for you, to shepherd you, to look out for you, to oversee you to preach to you, to teach to you, to come alongside, weep with you, rejoice with you, etc. Right? This is why, listen to me, all right? I, I, everybody listens to a thousand different Christian inputs, right? Podcasts of this and John Piper and Tim Keller and John MacArthur, one thing and the other. Listen, can I tell you? You can't be shepherded by a podcast. The internet is not a church. I'm thankful for any faithful Christian preacher, teacher that is propagating the word of God. Don't misunderstand me. 
But that's not your pastor. Tenth. Tithing is covenantal. What's covenantal? Relationship. If you're a Christian, if you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have a relationship with God. God has promised to bless you for obedience and and curse you for disobedience. We looked at the curses Jesus pronounced on the religious leaders, the hypocrites in Israel's day. Tithing is covenantal, all right? Look at chapter 9. Verse 6 through 8, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the, uh, the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see, God prospers his people, all right? God gave you a raise. God gave you a promotion. God gave you a bonus. God gave you whatever, all right? Increased you financially. But he didn't do that to raise your standard of living. In the United States, we suffer from affluenza. We go to Stuff Mart. You know what the largest, one of the fastest growing industries in America is? Storage lockers. We have so much stuff, we can't fit it in our homes. Affluenza. God prospers to raise your standard of giving not your standard of living. I I, I want you to look at a few passages with me, and these are very hard passages, all right? But they're in the Bible, and we should take note of them, all right? Tithing is covenantal. And when we're... Listen, let me preface it by saying this. I can't tell you how many times in the course of 35 years in ministry I've, heard, I've had people say, I can't afford to tithe. Let me say this at the outset. You can't afford not to tithe. Look with me. A couple of passages. Haggai, chapter 1. Turn back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Go beyond Matthew, right? You got Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. Right? Haggai chapter 1, verse 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much. Remember what Paul said? Sow, reap. You have sown much. You've harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You ever heard the saying, the faster I go, the behinder I get? Here's it being applied to money. What's God saying? He's saying, you're not being blessed. 
You never get out of debt. Now, if you know anything about the book Haggai, the minor prophets, over and over and over and over again, I listened to the book of Amos, James Boyce, my favorite preacher. I want to be like him when I grow up. I listened to the book of Amos on the way down today, right? And it's, you know, he was, he was talking, and minor prophets, this message comes through over and over and over again. God is constantly trying to get his people's attention. And here's one way he gets his attention. Money. You got financial problems? I'm trying to get your attention. Look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 16. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I'm trying to get your attention. Look at Amos. Turn back. Told you I listened to Amos on the way down. I didn't hear this passage. James Boyce was preaching on another passage. Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4, uh, verse 6 and following. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you didn't return to me, says the Lord. I also withheld Rain from you, where there were yet three months to the harvest. I'd send rain on one city, send rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it didn't rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink uh, water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Agricultural economy, right? Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me. I tried to get your attention. Yet you didn't return to me. Look at Micah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Dum, 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 dum. Micah, chapter 6. Micah, chapter 6. Verse 14. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. I'm trying to get your attention. And of course, the piece de resistance. The Italian prophet, Malachi. He's a friend of San Basile's from Sicily. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept to me. Kept them. All the words, right? All the minor prophets. I'm trying to get your attention. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Hosea, Amos, northern tribes, never heard from again. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? 
Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Now you've got to pause there, right? If you're a good Bible student, you know that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's a prohibition. It's an explicit, expressed prohibition. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Look at the text. Put me to the test. Now, these are hard words, all right? I'm, I'm really struck having to speak them, because I know they're hard words, all right? But I, I want you to listen to the grace God has here as he says this. This is not condemnation. It's not guilt manipulation. It's not browbeating, right? What's the grace here? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here's the grace. God says, test me. Go ahead, I'm going to let you test me. I want you to test me in this. Look at the text. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Test me in this. You're robbing me. You're guilty. Curses, but grace. In wrath, God remembers mercy. God is overflowing. He's the overflowing fountain of all good to his people. He's gracious. His love is steadfast. He beseeches. He beseeches. It's as if he, almost it's as if he's begging. Test me. I'll bless your face off. Test me in this. But don't rob me. Don't rob me. Now do you understand why I say you can't afford not to tithe? God doesn't want a tip. He wants a tithe. Now, even that's gracious, right? I mean, it all belongs to God, right? God could say, I want all of it. I want it all. He says, no, no, no. 10%. You realize how gracious this is? Because I'm sure you see commercials and Christian ministries like I see, or even non-Christian stuff on television, radio, you know? All this guilt manipulation, right? All these babies with distended bellies, and they're telling you how hundreds and thousands of people are starving in Southeast Asia and Africa. and one thing. You know, just send $11 a week, you know, and... and, and I'm not telling you not to do that. That's up to you. It's your money. But do do you see, God says, I'm trying to save you from guilt manipulation. 10%, that's it. And then, that's it. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
What should be your response? J.C. Robb put it well. A giving Savior should have giving disciples. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 8. As you excel in everything, and I speak this to you, brothers and sisters of Messiah's Reformed Fellowship, I hope you know after all the time that you've been here, I hope you know I love you. I have deep, fond affection for you. All right? And I know you excel in many things. There are many strengths which you have in this congregation. But this is a weakness, apparently. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, I affirm you. I encourage you. I'm thankful for all those things among you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Father, you are the overflowing fountain of all good. Every good and perfect gift, every good and perfect gift comes from our Father, your hand, our Father in heaven. We love you, we thank you, and we desire to love you and worship you in every aspect of our lives, including this one. If we have sinned against you, we ask that you would forgive us, restore us, and receive from us. If we have been faithful, we ask that you would encourage, that you would bless, and that you would prosper. But above all, Father, we ask that you would grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom to know is eternal life. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen and amen.